This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. This is Writing Excuses, Season 7, Episode 19, Q&A at UVU. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. I'm Howard. And one of our favorite people joining us, everyone applaud for James Dashner, who's taking this. Thank you. Thank you. Last, remember last time I said something about my palette of hair, so we can only go uphill from there. <laughs> <laughs> James, you're now, um, you're now like a super mega bestseller and stuff. Um, so uh, tell us about your books or something. <laughs> well, things are going great, but uh, I'm the author of the Maze Runner Trilogy, a prequel comes out this summer, and also I'm doing a uh, series with Scholastic called Infinity Ring that comes out this fall. So there we are, um, and we're just going to go straight to questions from the audience, and our first question is here. Go for it. Okay, um, Mr. Dashner, it might be because uh, I... We have an advanced reader copy of the first 13th Reality book, but the rest felt significantly different. Why is that? Interesting. That's a good question. Why do, why do books in a series become different as they go along? Well, I think your, your characters grow, your stories might get darker, the stakes might get higher and higher. And also you grow as a writer, because obviously your books are coming out, and you're writing more books, and you get better and better. So maybe that's why. Nah, it's Great because question. he got too important and he just hired some like person <laughs> in the Philippines to start churning his books out of the basement. I decided, uh, I decided not to wait till I die. I have Brandon Sanderson finishing my books. <laughs> Oh, that's an excellent question. It's not one that we've really covered. Paragraph by paragraph, how do you cover doing that right? Well, I always think of them, um, a paragraph is a, a discrete thought. It's a, a set of thoughts. And so I try to make sure that there is actually um, a mini arc within the paragraph mm -hmm. so that that, that thought um, has a beginning, middle, and an end. And then I move on to the next thought. I do use um, topic sentences. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's what you're taught in grade school, but it works really well to do a short sentence at the beginning that establishes what that paragraph is going to be about. I don't do any of that. <laughs> if I ever write a full paragraph, <laughs> I've done something horribly wrong. Um, what I'll often do, I'll, I'll do the, the topic sentence thing that uh, Brandon mentioned. I need to not gesture with either. <laughs> Um, and it's ridiculous. I, yeah, <laughs> no, it makes me look like the president. <laughs> I just need more of them. Did he have president of the hair club for men? <laughs> <laughs> no, the pants club for men. Okay. Um, I, will, I will often take a topic sentence and write a full paragraph. And the topic sentence is often the first thing to go when I'm editing, because the topic sentence says, hey, Howard, this is what you're going to say. But the rest of the paragraph actually says it. And I will prune and prune and prune until I have maybe one or two sentences that have all of those necessary thoughts in it. But I am extremely compressed 
because of the format I'm working in. I think I, I don't do nearly this much work on my paragraphs as all these guys. Um, however, what Mary said about a paragraph being a discrete thought, that is how I try to structure them. I try to keep everything very organic. One sentence will lead directly to the next one because it sounds like it naturally ought to come there. And then the breaks come when I know I'm talking about something else now. Okay. And that's how you do it. Excellent. And just one thing I think about sometimes is making sure I have enough white space mm -hmm. because readers get really tired when they see a bunch of words and no white space. <laughs> Although that Obviously is a fashion thing. Obviously, you don't thing. write epic fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that is a fashion thing. Yes. Well, I write for younger readers. Yes. Mm, yeah. Well, with your, with your trilogy coming out and an upcoming, or with your trilogy, oh, excuse me, and an upcoming prequel, right? I'm just wondering, um, more in a broader sense, where does your prequel start coming into coming into your mind as far as as far as during this journey of writing a trilogy? Okay, okay good. excellent question. Uh, the prequel is something that's been in my mind from before I even wrote the first book because it's the type of story that. It depends a lot on, on secrets and curiosity and intrigue and wondering what in the heck's going on. And so I knew that someday when I was done with this trilogy, I'd write a prequel. But what's interesting is the topic of that prequel changed over the years. I always thought I would write about Thomas and when he was growing up and being a part of Wicked and what they were doing to train him for what happens in the Mage Runner and all this stuff. But after a really, really long talk with my editor, we decided that people would just think that's like a laundry list of answers, things that they've seen, that they've glimpsed throughout the series. So it actually, we jumped even farther back, and the prequel that comes out is about the sun flares, the disaster, how it affects the world, and how the virus breaks out. And you actually meet new characters in this book. You know, that's, a, that's an interesting thing to say, because I do think, as a writer, um, prequels are really tempting. Because if you're doing what you should, everybody's going to have a backstory, and the world's going to have a backstory, and you know it all. Um, and so you've kind of got a pre-generated story right there. The reason I call them tempting is because many stories I don't think deserve a prequel, even though you've got all of that there. Some of them do. Some of them the prequel is, um, is just kind of demanding to be written, but for a lot of them, you've kind of covered it all, just like you said. Um, you know, the, the people keep asking me about the Mistborn books. Are you going to write um, this prequel about the, you know, the ancient world the Lord, when the Lord Ruler ascended and all this stuff? Um, the thing is, all of that was designed to give flavor to the trilogy. And so if I wrote that, it would actually be pretty boring because you already know it because it was designed in pur purpose to, to fulfill this. And so what I, the, the takeaway here for writers is um, I do think for your books, particularly your first books, Stay away from that and do use the in late out early advice. Try and start as close to the most exciting action as possible and use that background and flavor and don't focus too much on the prequels until you really have your feet underneath you. Yeah, I, I, would, uh, I would argue that um, as a writer, you know, write, the, write the trilogy, you know, write, it in, write the story that's in your head and worry about the prequel when your editor comes to you and says, this franchise is making us a dump truck load of money each week, but we need a new book and you ended it here, I think we need to rewind. That's a great time to think about a prequel. That had nothing to do with my prequel. <laughs> he, he doesn't make a dump truck worth of money. He makes four, so. <laughs> four dump trucks. Okay, I think it's time for a book of the week. Okay. And James, in uh, typically benevolent style, is actually gonna talk about somebody else's book rather than his own. Gasp. 
Uh, everyone really, really needs to check out Everneath by Brody Ashton. It's an excellent book and it's getting a lot of praise and, and it's already selling well even though she's a debut author. So check it out. Okay. Okay. Head on out to audiblepodcast.com slash excuse and kick off a 14-day free trial membership and download a copy of uh, Everneath by Brody Ashton. All right. Next question. Thank you, sir. All of you do really deep and wonderful stories, and I'm wondering how each of you actually plots those different stories. Okay, we could go forever on this. I think we're going to let two of us answer this. One's going to be James, because he's the guest star. Who else wants to, wants to field it? You okay. should do that. Uh, <laughs> 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 All right, they looked at me. James, you're, you're up. Okay. Plotting, you know, there's, there's every single author is different. You know, Stephen King talks a lot about how he does almost no plotting. He just sort of has a premise and then lets the characters take him wherever he goes. And then I know there are people, probably on this panel even, who write very, very long outlines and really think through it. I'm sort of in between. I do like to have an outline and I usually spend a few days with my premise of the story if it's a new thing and go through it and try to brainstorm of, you know, some of the major events and major plot twists and that sort of thing. But usually I get so excited to write the book that I just finally say, okay, that's it, I'm gonna start writing. Um, I'll share something here I haven't talked about on a podcast before because I usually um, try to make it very simple for people when I explain my process. And the process is a really complicated thing. And reducing it that way is, is actually, sometimes does a disservice. Um, I talk about myself being very much an outliner, and I am an outliner. Um, but one thing um, I've noticed about myself recently is that I usually don't actually start my outline until I've written a little bit. Um, I'll let something spark and get really exciting for me, and I'll sit down and I'll do a scene, and I'll write that scene, and let that kind of be like the catalyst that starts everything flowing, and from there I say, okay, where am I going to go from this, and what is my ending that's going to be great? How is it going to work? What's going to be tense, exciting? I look for that exciting excitement and conflict. Um, that's going to be a really snappy, powerful ending. And then I work backward to that, that starting point, and then I continue on. All right, next question. How do you craft endings that are both highly satisfying and leave the reader wanting more? Okay, Ooh. highly satisfying and leave the reader wanting more. Um, I, my trick is to have a, a really cheap epilogue that says, <laughs> guess what, there's so much more cool stuff, and um, I'm not going to show you right now. Yeah. <laughs> My, my trick is to make sure that I have answered the questions that I set up for them at the beginning, and then to raise a new question. Okay, I, I'm, I'm going to take this back at Brandon and say, that works for books one and two and whatever, yeah. but what about the ending? What about the last book of the series? I just kill everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Hamlet. I'm joking. I'm say, joking. I told you he wrote the Maze Runner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, um, I, um, I've only done it once. Um, and so, and I, even then, I'm not very good at leaving everything alone because I really, I feel satisfaction is closing a lot of these questions, but leaving people alive. And when I start my books, one of my main goals is to make you feel like those people have been living up until that point started. When we, they don't just walk on and be, appear and become alive then. They've had lives up to that point that are full of history and passion and depth. And I want, after the book ends, you continue to see they are full of life, passion, and depth, and they're going to continue having stories. Um, and so that is why, in a non-glib way, why my epilogues tend to be things that say, okay, and here is where everyone is going to go from here as kind of a starting off point. Um, and that doesn't always mean I'm planning a sequel. What that means is people live. 
people continue on. And so that's that's my um, way of doing it. Yeah, specific example from uh, from Schlock Mercenary at the end of Force Multiplication. Well, in the middle of the book, Force Multiplication. Uh, about half the crew learns this martial art called parkata urbatsu, which is basically uh, parkour for people who kill other people. And, um, and Sergeant Schlock is not one of those people. Okay, he's, he's off someplace else. At the end of that book, we have one panel where they're all receiving parkata urbatsu training, and Shodan says to somebody else, can you please help me unteach Sergeant Schlock what we've just taught him? and we see him bouncing through the crowd being better at it than anybody else. Well, it was a very satisfying ending to the book because, hey, he finally got the toy that everybody else got, and people looked at that panel and said, oh, I want to see him use that in the fight. When's he going to use that in the fight? He's going to use that in the next book. All right, thank you very much. We're going to do one more question. Um, so the rest of you, you get to be in line for our next Q&A session. You get to start, okay? Um, and we'll get to yours next. So last question for this edition. Um. What do you do when you have a really compelling and convincing villain? How do you keep them from completely taking over the book? Oh, good question. Good question. Who oh, that we it? should all have such problems. <laughs> a, compelling, a villain who's compelling enough to take over the whole book? I love that. That means the hero needs to step it up. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. If, if your villain is that good and your hero's crappy, then yeah, the villain needs to win. <laughs> but if, you just need to make sure your hero's good. One cool trick is to make the villain the main character's father. <laughs> <laughs> no! no one would buy it, James. No one would buy it. Too much of a coincidence. No, but uh, if you can have a compelling villain, you won. You know, you don't want your villain to be pure evil. Um, you want the reader to have empathy for the villain, all kinds of stuff like that that I'm sure we've talked about over and over. But you can also, you know, you can also go, hey, I like this character more than I like my main character. He's my main character. You know, what you're describing here is actually um, a well-known thing in fiction. Uh, one of the reasons the villains usually take off is because the villains are proactive and the, um, the, the heroes tend to be reactive, which means that the villains start some great scheme to do something awesome and that immediately makes them fascinating and interesting to the reader. The hero sits at home, when you're doing it poorly, and just waits for the villain to do something awesome and then responds to it. And this is the, 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 a great problem in fiction. So your goal then needs to be to make your hero have a great and awesome plan also that just isn't evil. And the villain's plan is interfering with that in some way. And so when you set that up, your hero then becomes proactive. They're trying to do things even, they're just not sitting around waiting. Make the hero more proactive and I think you will find your problem solved a little bit. All right, we are out of time, um, and James has to run to a, um, to a panel, and so I'm going to force him to give us a writing prompt. Okay, one day you have a bunch of crazy people come to your house and kidnap you and put you in a place called, it's a, uh, an asylum for the criminally sane. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice. Man, you were ready for that time, aren't, weren't you? Last time I, I surprised you, and you like come and hot time you just went for it. Now, man, you're getting lines for our tricks. Um, okay, well, thank you, James, very much for once again being on Writing Excuses and suffering us mocking you. Thank you. Thank you. You are indeed a good sport and an excellent person. So everybody go read James' books, and um, we are out of time. So this has been Writing Excuses. You're Writing Excuses. Now go write.
Hey, we do have more sessions coming, but we're going to take a uh, five-minute break. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 